You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. So what we've seen really is it's almost making the average bottom level phishing attack more sophisticated, more automated, and probably most importantly, more human. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hey, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, James Dyer and Jack Chapman from Egress join us. We're talking about their research about how hackers exploit the existing email infrastructure. But first, a word from our sponsor, Know Before. Where would InfoSec professionals be without users making security mistakes? Working less than 60 hours per week, perhaps. Actually having a weekend every so often. We get it. User behavior can be a challenge. But users can also be an InfoSec professional's greatest asset once properly equipped. What do we mean by that? Well, stay with us, and in a few minutes, we'll hear from our sponsors at Know Before on that very question. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories here, we got a little bit of follow-up. What do we got here? Right. Ron wrote in with a suggestion regarding specific email accounts. We were talking about that last week. Yeah. Uh, And he says, if you spend some very small amount of money per year, you can buy a domain and use a service like FastMail or ProtonMail to host your domain. Mm -hmm. And then you can configure uh, this domain as a catch-all for email, and you can create as many new email accounts and addresses as you want and discard them whenever you see fit. Yeah. Uh, It's a little bit easier to maintain than running your own email server. Actually, substantially easier. I would say it's a lot easier. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you're not Joe, it's a lot easier. (laughs) Right. Yeah, even for me, I've never set up an email server. I haven't set up an email server in years. I'll say that. And when I did set up email servers, I I hated every second of it. It was early exchange and... Oh my gosh, what a what a nightmare. Anyway, um I can even say decades now, Dave. <laughs> mm, nice. <laughs> How about nice. that? Yeah. Um so anyway, uh it's much more manageable and it's easy. And if your hosting domain goes out of business, you can still move it to a new domain and right. keep the email address. Because you own the domain name. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're good to go. Uh also he says thanks, and your show is outstanding. Oh, that's very nice. So thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. All right, let's jump into our stories here. Joe, why don't you start things off for us? Dave, I have, uh, I'm going to open up a little bit of good news and then move on to my main story. (laughs) Okay. This was coming from NewJersey.com or NJ.com, actually, NJ. And it is written by Jeff Goldman. And it is, New Jersey man is going to spend two years and three months in prison. This is Mahmoud Bowler, B-O-W-L-E-R. He is 40. He's from Newark, New Jersey. Hmm. And he helped scam... uh, one woman out of $66,000. Oh. And I'll bet he has scammed many more people out mm-hmm. of more money. Hmm. So uh, the fact that he's spending two years in prison for a $66,000 crime, I think that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I'd like to see a little bit more uh, because uh, if you look at that as an annual 
representation of income. That's, you know, that's not a lot of money, but still. Yeah. And he's here in the States. He's here in the States. Okay. Right. Yep. Right. He Good. is, uh, he grew up in Ghana, but he is uh, uh, in the U.S. now, and that's how we got him. All right. So he'll be the guest of the feds for the next two, a couple of years. <laughs> so we say a guest at Club Fed. Right. Yeah. Uh, good work. Uh, now, speaking of the feds, my story actually comes from Emma Fletcher over at the FTC. Hmm. And the FTC has put out a report, and this is a consumer protection data spotlight, which is, I guess, one of their products okay. that they do. And it is called Social Media, colon, a golden goose for scammers. Ah. So here's another opportunity for me to tell you another reason why I hate social media. Okay. <laughs> and the FTC runs something called the Consumer Sentinel Network, hmm. which is uh, a data aggregation product that, that gathers information from law enforcement agencies like the ICCC. IC3, as they like to call it, yeah. is a contributor. Uh, there are 25 state law enforcement organizations that are contributors. Hmm. Uh, actually, there are multiple FBI organizations, not just the uh, the ICCC, but there's like their financial crimes unit at the FBI. Okay. All of these report data to the FTC, and then they can all access uh, aggregates of these data to uh, build, you know, understand trends and things like that. It's a helpful tool from the federal government. Okay. But- they actually do some reporting on this data, and they found out that one in four people who reported losing money to fraud since 2021 have lost it on social media. Mm. This is to the tune of $2.7 billion. Mm. This is the most or the biggest, uh, the biggest way to lose money in, in, according to this, this data set, the next biggest being $2 billion. So it's like 35% bigger mm. than the next the next biggest uh, way to lose money, which, by the way, is websites or apps. Okay. Right? So being uh, online is hazardous to your wallet. Yes. Yeah. Being online can cost you somewhere around $4.7 billion, $4. billion a year. <laughs> uh, oh, wait, email. That's another $0.9 billion. Um, And then online pop-ups and texts and uh, or online pop-up ads and then phone calls close close at uh, close to the uh, websites and apps at around almost $2 billion. Wow. Phone calls, $2 billion. That's a lot of money, the phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, this article goes on to say that because the vast majority of frauds are not reported, that the number is actually huge. Mm-hmm. It's much bigger than $2.7 billion. There are a lot of people losing money out there on Facebook Marketplace. The reason this article speculates that it's easy to set up an account, I, I would agree. It's easy to set up an account. You can be whoever you want to be. Uh, you can be someone who matches perfectly with your target or just set up a nice match that you think would be a general good match, or you can even impersonate people that exist, mm. right? Uh, we see that all the time. An interesting point is that it's hitting younger people more than older people. Uh, and they say that this is because young people tend to use social media more than older people. Yeah. So as, that, as, that, as the population ages in, in this data set, they use social media less, so they're going to fall victim to it less. Yeah, I saw a different unrelated story to this one earlier in the week that had that same data point that, uh, you know, turns out that uh, younger folks are more susceptible to a lot of these scams than older folks, even though I think in our minds we probably skew it just the the opposite way. Right. There, there's other data about scams and, and not just social media scams, but like general scamming. Yeah. How this is more impact or not more impactful, but it's more likely to impact a younger person simply because they haven't been 
kicked around by life long enough, Dave. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> and older not people skeptical. are skeptical. Yeah, yeah, older people are less likely to believe it. The problem is that with older people, the losses can be devastating. Yeah. Um, they when an older person loses two hundred, three hundred thousand uh, dollars, that is significantly, significantly life changing, and that right. doesn't happen to younger people mainly because they don't have. Two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars yet. Right, they're, they don't have that nest egg. Right. Yeah. Uh, so a younger person will lose like a thousand dollars, and and that sucks. <laughs> don't get me wrong; I'm not belittling that. <laughs> right. That if I lost a thousand dollars right now, I would be like, "How am I going to get that back?" Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about robbing robbing liquor stores or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be doing that. But Joe goes on a crime spree. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I need a thousand dollars yesterday. Yeah. Uh, no, but it's it's um. Yeah, it's it's still impactful, but it's not life ruining yeah. for a young person. So we don't tend to hear about these stories very often, but it does happen to them more frequently. Mm, interesting. Now there's a great little graphic here, Dave, and uh, you know how much I like data and games. Yep. I'm going to give you uh, three. You haven't seen the graphic yet, have you? No, I've not. Okay, good. I'm going to give you three categories of online scams. Okay. And I want you to tell me first which one had the highest number of incidences. Okay. Okay. So the three are online shopping scams, investment-related scams, and romance scams. Which mm. one was the number one in terms of just numbers, not loss, but numbers? I'm going to guess investment scams because I think people are embarrassed to report their romance scams. Mm. Okay. You are right about romance scams. Romance scams only make up 6% of the data set. Okay. Investment scams make up 20% of the data set. Online shopping scams make up 44% of the data set. Wow. Which is shocking to me. What do we mean by online shopping? What does that encompass? Like Facebook Marketplace. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, those kind of, uh, or... Is it like Craigslist? Craigslist, or? yeah. Any, any of those... Any of those um, but does that include Amazon? It does not include that. These are top social media scams. Okay. So okay. these are social media online shopping scams. Gotcha. Okay. Instagram things. Hey, you want to buy this product? Anyway, it's all... Right. All the scams from social media. Okay. Um, now, not thinking about the number, but thinking about the volume, the size of the loss. Okay. Okay. All the numbers added up, all the losses types adding up. Okay. Which one do you think is the biggest loss uh, of online shopping scams, investment-related scams, or romance scams? Mm, again, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to choose between investment and romance. Uh, I'm just going to roll the dice here and say... Romance scams. Ah, Dave. Is it investment? You disappoint me. Yes, you should have said investment. Uh, 53% yeah. of the losses are from investment scams. Okay. Which is shocking. I don't know if it's shocking because these investment scams, what they do, and this article talks about it, is they make it look like your investment's being successful. Right. So you pile more money into it. And then that's when, you know, once you start asking for your money back, uh, that's when they start saying, oh, well, you need to pay some fees to get your money back. Yeah. And you start paying fees. To get, you know, you're, you're fully invested in the sunk cost fallacy at this point. In time. I should know this, but I, I'm wondering, are women or men more likely to fall for romance scams? Uh, that is a great question. I, uh, or is it equal? I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if there's data on that. Uh, there, there probably is data. I'm sure if our listeners are aware of a survey, they will let us know. Yeah. So if you do. Uh, but, you know, I haven't ever sought that out. I don't know, because we've heard stories uh, about people getting scammed by romance scams, and we've heard both sides of the story. We've heard both genders getting scammed. Right, right. Right? I guess the, <laughs> the, the funny thing I'm thinking about here is that women typically get scammed online by men, 
and men typically get scammed online by men pretending to be women. Right. <laughs> when it comes to romance scams. Yes, there is the occasional uh, female romance scammer. There was one, that right. lady in Florida that was living high on the hog on right. somebody's money. Right. Um, but yeah, that's that's the that's the rarity. Yeah. It is generally men just running these things. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, sh- uh, investment scams account for uh, 53% despite only accounting for 20% of the incidents. They account for 53% of the losses. Hmm. Romance scams account for 6% of the incidences, but at 14% of the losses. And while shopping, online shopping scams account for 44% of the incidences, they only account for 8% of the losses. Hmm. And the other numbers are just lumped here and other okay. other things. Um, this comes from about, um, uh, this is from January. This data, by the way, is from January of this year to June of this year, 2023. Okay. And there is 56,000 reports with a total of uh, 658 million lost. Wow. So the, the larger number, the 200, uh, the 2.7 million is since 2021. So if mm-hmm. there's any confusion there, this, this article does a really good job of laying it out. So what's the takeaway here, Joe? Uh, takeaway is social media is terrible, Dave. That's, that's <laughs> Joe's takeaway. Okay. Uh, uh, takeaway is it doesn't matter where you are. If, if you're online, you need to be careful. Yeah. Um, you need to, you need to do, educate yourself about the, how these scams look, what they look like. Look for the telltale uh, signs like changing platforms and going to an end-to-end encrypted messaging application. Right. Uh, you know, all, all the things we talk about on this show, look, yeah. look for those, look for those, uh, those warning signs. Uh, and don't invest in cryptocurrency. Absolutely don't invest in cryptocurrency. If you, unless, unless you can afford to take the money you're going to invest in cryptocurrency out into the street and just set it on fire. <laughs> Don't do that. Right. You know, I mean, maybe you want to invest a little bit in cryptocurrency because you think there might be a chance for a high return. Good. Fine. It's like gambling. That's, yeah. I, I would say the same thing. You know, if you're going to invest with that, invest money that you can totally lose because yeah. I have a feeling that something is going to happen. Super high risk. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> with all these scams, it's not, it's, something is going to happen. Yeah. But even if you're investing in actual crypto, I don't know. Yeah, super high risk. Super high Absolutely. risk, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, interesting stuff. Well, we will have a link to that story from the FTC in our show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from the folks over at Ars Technica. Mm. This is written by Dan Gooden, and it's titled, Google-hosted malvertising leads to fake KeyPass site that looks genuine. Huh. Uh, Joe, are you familiar with KeyPass? KeyPass is a password manager. It is. Um, and... Are they one of the ones that got breached recently or a couple of years ago? I don't recall specifically. Uh, it seems I can't like, remember. you know, they <laughs> all these breaches are merging into one big yeah, breach. Day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> which is essentially what they've become. Right. So, KeyPass, you're correct. KeyPass is a password manager and um what has happened here is some researchers found that uh there were folks running ads. Oh, wait, Dave, KeyPass is yeah, I'm that's the one I use. <laughs> KeyPass right. XC is the one I use, not KeyPass. I okay. use a um, yes, but key, we've talked about KeyPass before. Yeah, this is the uh, this is the one where we had the story about the rules you can write uh, oh. in KeyPass. Okay, all right. So KeyPass is a legitimate product. It is a password manager, and there were ads appearing on Google for KeyPass. Right, it's um, free and open source. Yeah. So what would happen is if you 
uh, would click through on one of these ads, uh, it would take you to keypass.info. Mm. Uh, and it, sa- it says that. You look at the ad, and it says it goes to keypass.info. Um, and then if you go to keypass.info, it takes you, it loads up a web page that looks exactly like the legitimate KeyPass website. Huh. And of course, you know where this goes from here. Right. Uh, okay. You install some malware that is pretending to be KeyPass. It's actually a, a malware family called FakeBat. Not exactly sure what that does. Um, but there's some interesting things here. Um, Google's Ad Transparency Center shows that these ads were running by some company called Digital Eagle, which Google claims is an organization that has been verified by Google. Of course, that's not worth anything, I guess, in yeah. this case. Um, and But what I, what I really want to get at here, that I'm curious on your take... Um, they're, the way that they make this keypass.info look like a legit website is they're using something called Punicode. Are you familiar with Punicode? I am not. Okay. What is Punicode? So Punicode allows you to, uh, to have Unicode characters represented in ASCII text. Okay. So, for example, in this uh, case... Um, the word keypad, like the K in the word keypass, yeah. the way it's encoded, it actually has a little tiny comma-like like pixel below the K. Like a diacritic below the K. Yeah. Okay. Which most people would, would miss. miss. Yeah. I didn't even see that when I was looking at the uh, when I was looking at, at, at the picture here. Looks like a piece of dust on your monitor. It does. <laughs> Except it scrolls. Yep. So uh, so that's part of how they do it. So it appears to you to be keypass.info, but it's actually going to uh, uh, xn-eepass-vbb.info. So something different. Right. Uh, and they can use this, I don't know what you call it, a mismatch in uh, text encoding, you know, using different type. There, there are different types of text encoding online. Right. Right. There's Unicode. There's ASCII for us old timers. Yes. And uh, by having these, uh, because your browser can interpret those, these bad guys are are taking advantage of that. Right. Now Google says that uh, they have since taken it down. Oh, great! Thanks, Google. <laughs> but I just, uh, to me, this points to the increasing or uh, decreasing ability for Google to successfully successfully police this stuff. Yeah. If a if a ad provider is verified uh, and is able to do this, it means that Google's verification procedures are, are flawed in some uh, way. Broken. I would say they're broken. Yeah. Yeah. Or perhaps the, an organization was legitimately verified, but then the bad guys got in and took over their account. I would find out what had happened there if I were Google. I'd yeah. be furiously researching this. Um, yeah. I mean, some people make the point that it is not in Google's interest to... I track these that things frequently. down. Yeah, track these down uh, with great vigor because, of course, Google makes money off. Of yeah, Google Google released earnings last week, and their advertising is still their biggest part of their uh, their business model. Yeah, so, I, I suppose the opposite of that would be that it's not in their long term interest to to allow this sort of thing because, just like what we're talking about here, that people's trust of Google will go down. And they won't want to use Google to switch yes. to one of their competitors. Yes, I, I maybe they'll switch to Apple, who doesn't have an advertising business model. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, Apple also doesn't have a search engine. Right. That's true. So. <laughs> but it's not like they couldn't build that, you know? That's true. It's true. Since Apple has all the money. Right. <laughs> uh, you could just buy DuckDuckGo and be done with it. Although I guess DuckDuckGo gets their stuff from Bing, which is Microsoft. It's all one big pile of right. giant companies, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. That's the last thing I want is more, more conglomeration in these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you know I'm... I'm I'm right now looking, watching with uh, with bated breath as the as the I don't know if it's the FTC or the SEC. Somebody is looking at uh, the antitrust problems with Amazon, uh, Facebook, and Google. Right. Uh, so every time I see that, I, I get a little smile on my face. <laughs> um, yeah. Seems like anyway, it, they are they are a bit big, too big for their britches. I would say. I would agree, and yeah. you know, Google this this problem. This problem with this ad, you know, this is not the first time we've talked about it. I've talked about how this even impacted me directly one time. Mm. Um, and it's so pervasive. It's out there all the time. I don't know anybody that hasn't had this happen to them. So yeah. if it's got saturation in the marketplace, why isn't Google concerned about it? Mm-hmm. Or why aren't they acting as if they're concerned about it? Why aren't they doing something? What well, I mean... Like well, you, they would say they are. Yeah, they are. Sure. But here we are with another great story about <laughs> right. somebody actually installing malware on your system as a result of these ads. Yeah. I mean... I mean, Joe, if you can't trust an ad, who can you trust? Right. Well, well th- but you know what? This also reminds me... I mean, this gets to that point of you go to a news site right now and you have an ad blocker and they say, we see that you have an ad blocker installed. Well, no. yeah, I have to have an ad blocker installed because of all the crap like this. Ugh. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it makes you angry. Yeah. So, um, my biggest problem with this and is the human factors design of these ads are designed to look like the search results. Mm-hmm. When Google first started doing ads, they put the ads over to the, to the right side of the page. Yeah. Now your, your eye doesn't go to the right side of the page. Your eye goes to the first result in the search. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Google has realized that's the more valuable place to put the ad because that way they get more click-throughs. Right. And that's what they're doing. Yep. Um, so they don't have their users' best interest in oh, mind. They have their, their users are their product, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They don't care about the product. Yes. I they was... care about them, their profits and the customer. Yeah. That, and you, the user of the system, are are... I don't know how to say it, Dave. Well, <laughs> just, but I wonder, how do you protect yourself against something like this? Obviously, you can have an ad blocker. Right, the ad blocker works. I don't know how much that works within a Google uh, results search page. Uh, I, I, I'm i not sure the degree to which an ad blocker blocks ad results that are within Google's own search results. Yeah, I don't know. Have you tried it with your ad blocker? Let's give it a shot. Let's go to google.com. And you know what? I'm just going to search for KeePass. Right. See what we get here. Uh, da, 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 da. No, I don't see any ads. So it looks like my ad blocker is working. All right. Let good me news. See if I get it because I don't have an ad blocker. <laughs> Well, let I, me put it this way. I also don't see any ads. Nothing's being labeled as being an ad in right. here. But, you know, well, what does me, that mean? Let me try diamonds. Okay. You know, they're a girl's best friend. Yes. Uh, okay, so go ahead and search diamonds. Okay. See what happens. Diamonds. Uh, okay. Uh, 
Nope, don't see any ads. I get two ads before I get anything. Okay. I get sponsored, sponsored. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. There's our, there's our brief uh, little experiment that right. uh, you may or may not get ads depending on your the degree to which you have ad blockers installed. Right. But still, shouldn't be an issue. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it, this a company is with the resources of Google should be doing a better job yeah. than they are with and this. And that's, it's frustrating. What should we tell them, Dave? If they can't do this at scale? They shouldn't do it at right. all. <laughs> right. There you go. All right. Well, we will have a link to this story in the show notes. Of course, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from the CyberWire editorial staff. Mm. And uh, there's there's a real problem here, Dave. It's, uh, it's a nice picture, so it doesn't have any text in it. So, <laughs> Okay. I mean, it, it does have text in the picture. You have to read the picture. Yeah. But it's not... Yeah, there's nothing so, clickable here. All right. So this nice says... Safe. The subject is Apple FaceTime Information Disclosure. Mm. There's a logo here from the National Security Department. Right. The NSD. <laughs> the NSD, yeah. <laughs> the, the highly secret... They're even more secretive than the NSA, Joe. <laughs> right. So secretive, I've never heard of them. Yes. It says... A vulnerability has been identified in the Apple FaceTime mobile applications that allow an attacker to record calls and videos from your mobile device without your knowledge. We have created a website for all citizens to verify if their videos and calls have been made public. To perform the verification, please use the following link. <laughs> There's a big yellow button that says FaceTime, FaceTime verification. verification. It says, this website will be available for 72 hours. National Security Department. Yeah, 72 hours is probably... It- Probably won't be available that long, hopefully. Um, <laughs> I don't know what happens when you click on this link, but if you, if there's anything for you to enter any information, yes, your your video has been leaked. Right, right. Uh, I'm guessing this will take you to a page where something will pop up and will say, oh, we need your Apple ID. We need your Apple login information here. Yeah. In be- order to verify your FaceTime, in order for the National Security Department <laughs> to verify... <laughs> Your FaceTime, we need your, so. They yeah. got so angry when I said National Security Administration instead of agency. Oh. You remember that? Yeah. They wrote letters. Yeah. But, and, and I was wrong to say administration, <laughs> it's agency. Yeah. But I wonder how they feel about National Security Department. Well, I'll give you another one. Uh, don't call someone from the CIA an agent. They're not agents. They're officers. Officers. They're, and they're very... They're very prickly about that. Yes, FBI <laughs> FBI people are agents, right? FBI is agents, CIA are officers. Officers. Yes, that's Sorry. correct. That's correct. All right, again, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. We were talking about making users into an asset for security professionals. Simply put, users want to do the right thing. They're often just lacking the knowledge to do so. That's one of the reasons Before has released Security Coach, a real-time security coaching tool that takes alerts from your existing security stack and sends immediate coaching to users who've taken risky actions. For example, Imagine a user has visited a high-risk website or tried to open a document containing malware. 
Existing security tools will likely block that action, but the user might not understand why. Security Coach analyzes these alerts and provides users with relevant security tips via email or Slack, coaching them on why the action they just took was risky. Help users learn from their mistakes and strengthen your organization's security culture with Security Coach. Learn more about Security Coach at knowbefore.com slash security coach. That's knowbefore.com slash security coach. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with James Dyer and Jack Chapman. They are from a company called Egress, and they did some research about how hackers are exploiting existing email infrastructure. Here's my conversation with James Dyer and Jack Chapman. It came to my attention whilst analyzing hundreds more scouting emails than we would usually get on a daily basis. And understanding these scouting emails were not only just analyzing if that inbox is legitimate and is alive, but also embedding tracking pixel technology with links within that email, which would collect additional information. Off the back of that, understanding what they're looking for, I analyzed that a lot of these scouting emails were actually coming from a server that was located in Japan. And whilst doing a connection from that server, what mail flow is coming from there, I was able to identify a few follow-up attacks as well. Now, you mentioned scouting emails. Can you explain to us what exactly is is under that umbrella? Yeah, so a scouting email is usually when an attacker will get a list of victims' email addresses, but it could be quite out of date. So they usually send an email with little context, so no subject, no email address, to see if Microsoft give them an NDR, which is a non-deliverable receipt. That's where Microsoft will tell them this email address no longer exists, you can't send to them. Um, But they can also use links to gather more information like metadata, what IP address is accessing this link, what web browser or software are they running and they're able to then use that information to follow up attack find different vulnerabilities and exploits the attacker can leverage when they do repeat that attack just to add to that i think really it's an interesting trend we've seen where it really is that first step in the kill chain of how do attackers find targets and historically You've had sort of those from data breaches, but as these data breaches have increased over time, some of that older data isn't as useful anymore. So these scouting attacks are how criminals are essentially renewing the validity of that data while also performing additional services like putting it into nice buckets for them to sell on to other criminals like vertical specific, like these users are in finance, these users are in technology and so on. And it's really one of the sort of driving forces behind some of the increase in sophistication we see with criminals attacking in the email space. Yeah, it's a really interesting insight. I mean, I I was recently chatting with some folks uh, on social media over on Mastodon and they were kind of scratching their heads about all of these emails that they were getting that said nothing other than hello or hi, you know, it's just like one word <laughs> types of things. And we were trying to puzzle through what could they possibly be for. And it, it sounds like these, uh, these scouting endeavors could fit the bill, could explain what they're up to. 
we see hundreds of those where it's like, hi there, hello. And they're honestly just scouting for either a response from the user so they can potentially do a follow-up attack and gather more information. But we've seen recently with ChatGPT entering the industry how attackers can just gather so much more information and understand who they're going after that they're able to launch these attacks at much more scale than before. Hmm. And how has ChatGPT uh, kind of supercharged their efforts? I think it's quite interesting to take that question one step further. It's really how is AI changing the landscape? And ChatGPT has definitely been that jump forward in these large language models. It's really removing the barrier of entry to not only creating the phishing template, but creating the malicious link that will scrape credentials being able to use it to gather background information on organizations. And really, it's almost like a personal assistant for criminals, especially with some of the weaknesses in these AI systems. So what we've seen really is it's almost making the average bottom-level phishing attack more sophisticated, more automated, and probably, most importantly, more human. I, I would echo that. You often see those standard 419 scams where it's an astronaut stuck on space requesting 10 Bitcoin, whereas attackers can now use ChatGPT to make a more convincing story with no grammar or spelling mistakes. It's just an, an old pal inviting you to a wedding that they want your email address or something to they, they can attach onto that they can use to launch a follow-up attack as well. Hmm. Well, let's dig into this specific issue here with with the out-of-office notices. I mean, I think this is a pretty common thing for most people to do. I know if I'm out on vacation or holiday, I'll put up an out-of-office reply to let people know to not expect a a response uh, very quickly. What's the peril here? How are the bad guys taking advantage of this? So these were attacks that were extremely common pre-COVID, when people were taking holiday and using the out-of-office feature within Microsoft, but kind of died down where they were doing staycations or maybe not using out-of-office. But we've seen quite a lot recently where attackers will do those scouting attacks to understand if that email address is still active. But if they get a bounce back that that individual is out of office, they can then use that information to aid their attack. They can go on social media platforms like LinkedIn, like Instagram, and gather more information about this individual. And they can perhaps impersonate them or go after people within their team and use them being out of office as a leverage, as a bit of credibility in their conversation. Jack, are there any specific examples here of the types of things that you all are tracking? Yes, I think we can almost view out of offices as almost a layered approach, a bit like a lot of security concerns where just saying that you're not at work is almost a level one where it's like, okay, there's an opportunity to impersonate this person. And this is something we often face, that balance between efficiency and in some ways politeness in a business to give people a heads up you won't be answering emails for a little while. But on the other scale, and especially what's happened in some of these cases is where you give specifics to that. It might be the case of I'm going to be out of office because I'm in um, the US. I'm out of office because I'm going on a bike tour. I'm out of office because I'm climbing a mountain. All of these additional bits of information almost help seed that next attack. Like all sort of good OSINT-based 
methodologies and secops, it's important we're aware that something that is very human to share can be turned around and weaponized. And we're tracking a lot of these types of attacks where it's almost becoming opportunistic, where the main mission for the criminal is to gather and sell these data sets. However, if they're offered almost information about a potential victim or organization where they can impersonate that victim, it's almost like a silver platter for them. It's done half their research for them. And I suppose folks need to be careful, too, about what they share on social media. I mean, for I'm thinking that if I'm out of office and I have a, a fairly uh, straightforward out-of-office notice at work, but then I post on Facebook, you know, hey, having a great time, you know, climbing this mountain with my family, uh, and that's publicly accessible, it's not hard for the bad guys to connect those two dots. Absolutely. And I, I think it's safe to say, I know we've discussed this a lot in industry over the years of that gap between personal presence and work presence. But I think it is safe to say that that divide has never been thinner in a lot of uh, people's cases. And for the sake of a 30-second Google search, you suddenly have all of the information you need to double, triple, quadruple the effect of your next attack. What are your recommendations then? I mean, it, it, do we not do out-of-office uh, responses? Or what, what are, what's the best practice here to, to help tamp down on this? My first kind of response to that would be being aware of how operation security can be an impact. Being aware that what you post on LinkedIn or Facebook can actually be used against you. And understanding if that should be information that we put out there in the open. Because I often hear that people think they don't have anything to offer these attackers, that they're not worried if they go after them. But at the end of the day, if you have a Microsoft 365 credentials that they can steal and log in, that is enough. That has the authentication to back it up and the, the long shelf life that domain has. We see multiple attacks, actually, where people just log into their Microsoft 365 account, upload a malicious file onto SharePoint, and use SharePoint's built-in notification system to send an email to all different types of people. And that becomes quite hard to detect from a technical aspect because that email is from SharePoint. There's nothing malicious in it until you actually end up on SharePoint where there's a malicious attachment waiting for them. I think just to add two things to that, it's very much from a human side of be aware that there's this risk out there. Therefore, let's mitigate it in some common sense steps. Let's not put specifics in out of office emails, for example, because really the outcome's the same. Similarly, let's hold off on posting all of our sort of personal holiday photos until perhaps we're back. Um, and just these couple of sort of safe sanity steps, which don't reduce the enjoyment of some of these activities or the efficiency for business process can drastically change the outside perception as an individual and as an organization. Then I think on the other side, thinking as a security team who has to try and manage some of these risks, I think first thing is having visibility of these risks. And that's where basically looking at what is your threat landscape? Are you going to have persistent threat actors against your business on a daily basis, weekly basis? Because um, that's really going to be the first step of how worried do we need to be about these attacks versus the opportunistic versus actually this type of threat landscape doesn't actually apply to us. Like all things cyber, not one size fits all here. 
I suppose, is it fair to say that there's some awareness training that, that comes into play here too of letting your employees know or, or perhaps putting, uh, I don't know, standards in place? If someone is away on vacation uh, and you suddenly get a call from them saying, hey, you know, I need you to transfer this money and I need it done today, that that sh- sort of thing should be setting off all kinds of red flags. Absolutely. And when I always look at this, it's always going back to the core three pillars of how can technology help, how can people and training help, and how can policy help, which is often overlooked. And a lot of the answers are there already. If you just have the one policy step of a financial transfer can't happen without voice confirmation, that suddenly removes 99% of attacks. I know there's deep fakes coming along to help target that vector. That's one for another day, perhaps. But similarly, having technology in place that can detect these type of attacks, but having training, just making people aware. Because in some ways, it's not just an organization problem. There's quite personal risk here as well. I know a lot of um, opportunistic robbers, for example, physical security, um, will take the opportunity of when they see people posting holiday photos to target homes, for example. And this all collates together. So I think there's quite a lot we can do and advise people here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting balance, isn't it? I mean, you have to balance the risk of all this against, I think, people's sincere desire to be social online and and you know share their adventures and and uh, be connected with people through these social media platforms. But I guess, unfortunately, these are some of the things you have to keep in mind. Yeah, it's it's one of those hard things, especially being in cybersecurity, where you want people to have the freedom to enjoy this technology. But when attackers find a route in to almost corrupt the benefits of this technology, that's where we do need to put a couple more controls in place so that we keep people safe at the end of the day. Hmm. Are there any technology solutions that folks can aim at this? Any sorts of things that can, can help it at the source? I think a a great piece of software that you can help mitigate some of these attacks is obviously multi-factor authentication, where you can prevent people attempting to try and log into your account. Obviously, there are phishing frameworks like EvilGenix that can store your session cookies and can help bypass MFA, but it's a great layer to stop a large amount of attacks as well. And just to add to that, I think the other side is let's basically evaluate the kill chain of all the different steps that attackers take to go down this route and create this threat and just ensure that we validate it. So I know a lot of new ICSs, uh, integrated cloud email security solutions are layering on top of Microsoft, which can really help with some of these more advanced attacks. Going down the chain, having process in place to essentially validate, for example, DMARC to make it harder for your organization to be targeted. And I think this combined with the training and the policy puts organizations in a lot better place. And one thing that always gives me a headache, especially James mentioned MFA, is just because it doesn't stop every attack doesn't mean it's worth not worth doing. Because at the end of the day, we need to frustrate the criminals as much as possible here to keep ourselves safe. Joe, what do you think? I'll say it again, Dave. Email is terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just the worst. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the only service that we as network and internet users put out there, open up, where 
anybody can put anything into it. Right. And that makes it terrible. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the good old days? Let's get nostalgic. And do you remember when email was just text? I remember when email was on dial-up bulletin board systems. That was great. Yeah, that was a different mail system. <laughs> that wasn't actually like, e- I guess it was email, but it was like a completely different protocol. Yeah, and it would, yeah, depending on which BBS they were running, you know, it was one person at a time kind of thing. Right. Yeah, they, they were all different. See, which meant you had to learn a different set of controls for each one. Anyway, rat hole. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, why do we have to add HTML to email? This is, uh, first off, I don't want to see people's formatting. I don't want to see your little kitten background. Yeah. Right? I don't want to have to download that image. But going to HTML enables a lot of things like image downloads. Right. Right? Which is the what those tracking pixels are that they were talking about. Yeah. Um, if you have a setting in your client, turn off the image downloading. It should be turned off by default, but it probably isn't. Yeah. I like the term scouting email. Uh, I think that's an excellent term because the purpose of these emails is reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. What they're, what they're, the, um, the emails that James and Jack are talking about are, are for that purpose. And let's take a look at what, what you get. If you send a, an email into, a, a, into, a, into an organization, a bunch of emails into an organization, you're going to find out almost immediately which ones are bad because they're going to bounce back. Mm-hmm. And you can immediately just remove those from your list. If you add a tracking pixel and their client downloads it, like... Microsoft Outlook does when you preview a message. It might go out and download that image. You have confirmed, number one, the email is legit, right? You've got that there's a user on the end of that email. Right. Uh, The person opens their email or previews it. Uh, And three, you might get the email address that they're coming out of. Or, I'm sorry, IP address. Yeah. The IP address they're coming out of. And if you have enough information, you may be able to determine whether or not they're at work or at their home office, Mm -hmm. Uh, right? Which means you have more intelligence you can gather that way. Right. Uh, If you include a link and they click on it, you get even more information. Like they're the kind of user that will click on links, you send them in emails, Right. right? That's very important information. Yeah. But once you get that, you'll actually get the string of their default, they'll get the browser string, which will tell you what their default browser is. Maybe it has a vulnerability. Maybe you can actually exploit that. Hmm. Um, And you can also get confirmation of their email address. All that can happen from one email Mm -hmm. sent in. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a lot of information to collect from one email. Jack notes that uh, this is usually the first step in the kill chain. And that is 100% correct. In the vast majority of cyber attacks, the very first kinetic kinetic activity, the first thing they do after they've gathered all their information is they send emails in. Right. Um, so it is the first step in the kill chain out of office replies in Microsoft Outlook. You can set that off out of office reply just to go to people in your own organization. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if you can do that, do that. Uh, if you're going to be slow responding to, uh, to emails, uh, maybe you delegate your email to somebody else instead. Hmm. Um, so that there's a human on the other end. So you're not just telling people that you're out on vacation. Uh, if, if you tell people you're out on vacation outside of your organization, it really opens you up. You know, you, they can use LinkedIn to find out who your coworkers are and attack them by impersonating you. Um, in, in sales in sales organizations, it may not be possible to turn off your email auto replies from outside, right? Right. You, you may want to say, okay, if you have something really important, please contact this person. Uh, and, and that may be good information to have. So I, I understand that there's a use case where that's happening, but um, putting these, these things together, uh, you know, the, the kind of information to 
that you need to attack somebody this way is trivial. So be careful with what you're doing. Right. Uh, and don't forget about your own personal operational security as well. Don't say you're out on vacation. You're on vacation for the next two weeks, you know, hiking uh, hiking the, the Appalachian Trail from Maine to uh, New Hampshire this weekend. <laughs> when right. you live in Maryland, uh, somebody <laughs> could just drive up to your house and go, yeah, you sure not there. <laughs> right, right. Come home to an empty house. <laughs> right. Sure, I'm glad I hired, uh, you know, Bubba to babysit my Rottweiler right. <laughs> while I'm gone. <laughs> maybe, maybe you put that in there, right? Right, right. Uh, babysit my Rottweiler and uh, clean all my guns. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm not worried they're not interested in me. Uh, mm. I have to de- take a deep breath whenever I hear this anymore. Um, I have been screaming this from the mountaintops uh, for as long, almost as long as I've been telling people about using password managers and multi-factor authentication, uh, you do have something of interest. And James makes a great point talking about the Microsoft 365 account being used to host malicious software. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a nightmare scenario. And it, it's it's enabled by the attitude, I don't have anything that's of interest. Right. Uh, you do have things that are of interest. Uh, to protect yourself, policy, policy, policy with your business. Uh, always... And, and I agree. I can't remember if it was uh, James or Jack that said it, but it, policies overlooked. Make sure your policy is good and and not subject to vulnerabilities. Multi-factor authentication and focus on the kill chain. The earlier is the better. Yeah. Right. That, you know, the, we keep saying hackers only have to get it right once. They don't. They have to get it right a series of times in a row to get get entry. If you can stop them anywhere along that line, you stop them. Yeah. Um, Maybe but, they'll move on to someone else who's easier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to James Dyer and Jack Chapman from Egress for joining us. We do appreciate them taking the time. We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are experts in helping users do the right thing through new school security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Listening.